This episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Stamps.com. If you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office, man, you know what we have heard about what it's going to be like to mail a package this holiday season. Make it easier on yourself. Save time and money with Stamps.com. They let you compare rates. They let you print labels. They let you access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS all year long. I mean, it really just makes sense, especially if you or your business sends more mail or packages during the holidays. So it doesn't matter. You're selling online, you're running an office, you're running a side hustle. Stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays. Save time, save money, make this holiday season actually feel relaxing. Stamps.com. Sign up with the promo code POD, P-O-D, for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments, no contracts. Just go to stamps.com. Now, on to the show. Don't go to sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Yeah. Rumor and innuendo. Your favorite bands, your favorite songs. My name is Brian. Hey, guys. It's Murdoch. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks so much for always connecting with us. You guys actually help curate the show by sending us mail. We are the story guys at gmail.com. It's that simple. You can check out the show at wearethestoryguys.com and the other stuff that we do. It's all there as well. Connect with us on social media. Leave a review. If you like the show, it's really helpful for you to review it in iTunes. Tell your friends about it, etc., etc. And you can support the show on Patreon if you want to do that. Patreon.com. Uh, get stuff like scripts and bonus episodes and that sort of stuff. But uh, today... Weeks back on the show, we talked about one of my favorite photos, that unique moment of Steve Perry grilling that got captured on film that I like to show everyone that's important to me. That is a really awesome photograph that I'd never seen before. I stand by my assessment that places that in the Photographic Hall of Fame. Like, right up there with, like, the guys on the uh, the construction site hanging over the oh, in the yeah. air, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Marilyn Monroe, like, over the... Su- the- <laughs> The subway grate. And then there's Steve Perry hell, with, hell with the hot to dog. The, yeah. On a similar note, th- this is a historical television moment, and there's a lot of good ones. So I'm not going to say it's like hands down the end-all, be-all, but I do yeah. have I, – I, I do contend that it swims very near the top. Do you have a television performance that comes to mind for you as one of the greatest rock and roll television performances? Prince at the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's one of those where were you moments for me, too, right? Like, I know exactly where I was standing when I saw that and just was like, what is happening right now? I remember the next morning reading that Dave Grohl and Hawkins were, like, hanging out, and they were watching it, and they were like, he's, what the hell, he's playing best yeah. How is he playing best of you at the Super Bowl? Yeah, I just remember the rain. That was that was epic. Before we get to mine, before we get to the stage lights and the hosts and the television audience and all those things that are involved, we got to go somewhere that you and I likely find a little more romantic. Uh, not romantic like you and I having a romance, but just romantic in the things that we like to think about. And that's 1980s Los Angeles punk. Three dudes, guitarist J.J. Holiday, drummer Charlie Quintana, and bassist... Tony Marsico. Do you recognize any of those names? Is that the guys from Fear? No, but you're you're in the right arena, so good for you. Okay, it's a, it's a wrong name. Let, let's start with Charlie and Tony. They were in a band together called The Plugs. Have you ever heard of The Plugs? Yeah, I, I'm. it's starting to come together. It, so, they're part of something else. 
the the plugs were a Chicano punk band from Los Angeles. They formed in 1977. They broke up in 1984. And they celebrated their Chicano heritage, but they sort of made light of it, too. Uh, a good example of that is this, which there's not a lot of plugs music that's still around, but but this exists. <laughs> I mean, you get it, right? Like, that's that's the plugs. So these dudes are hanging out in that scene, but they, they never super established. They had one almost big break, though. And this is about to derail us, so just hold on. They end up on a movie soundtrack that becomes a historical artifact of this period. They end up on the soundtrack to Repo Man. Suddenly somebody will say, like, plate. Or shrimp, or plate of shrimp, out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? I saw I saw Repo Man when I was really young, and then I never saw it again. I don't remember it at all. When researching this, I thought, I want to watch this movie. And my immediate thought was, I bet it's on Tubi. <laughs> and it is. It's it totally is. on Tubi. I don't know if that says more about the movie itself or more about Tubi. But you can definitely watch it for free if you download that app. Um, but the soundtrack to this thing is more important than the movie, right? Uh, it, the movie's crazy. Harry Dean Stanton, Emilio Estevez, Aliens. It's like quite the artifact. And the plugs don't just have a, sound on, a song on the soundtrack, Mark. They score the whole film. Uh, but but the, the soundtrack becomes a touchstone. Iggy Pop, Suicidal Tendencies, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Fear. Circle Jerks. And The Plugs. There was This is how influential this, this stupid movie soundtrack was. There was a tribute version of the soundtrack released back in 2012. It features Mike Watt, Matthew Sweet, Amanda Palmer, and Black Francis, if that gives oh you my. any idea. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now. <laughs> Polar Bear Club. Those darlings Dude, from Nashville do Repo Man. I love I love Polar Bear Club. Polar Bear Club's a favorite band of mine. Um, but the, the plugs aren't getting that famous in this scene, right? They're playing around Hollywood. They're like most struggling musicians. They're just taking work where they can get it. Especially when their friends and their family can hook them up. And that's what happens. That's what propels our story. That's what happens to Charlie Quintana, the drummer. But we got to pause on Charlie. So just take Charlie, put him to the side. We got to talk about somebody else. Have you ever heard the name Gary Schaffner? Yeah, I guess so. Currently the co-founder of this hip outdoor advertising company that's in LA, like actively working called Alchemy Media. And they do these giant ads on the sides of buildings in like non-traditional spaces and stuff. Big clients, big ideas, the whole thing. Over a decade ago, Gary Schaffner was included in an article in LA Weekly called The Mad Men of LA. So that's just to give you an idea of his reputation, right? Okay. He, he, he's old. I don't think he's probably doing a lot at Alchemy Media right now, but he is considered a co-founder. And his big innovation back in the day was promoting rock concerts by using this loophole in the law, right? So he would print these tiny flyers. And he got the city. I don't know how he did this, but he got the city to give him permission to glue these little tiny poster-sized ads on fences around construction sites. 
in LA. So there's all these construction sites. And he's like, I guess he went in and pitched it as like beautification. And, and he's like, hey, I'll, this will keep the graffiti down. There won't be any surface to graffiti on if we put these little posters up. But when he did that, like, and he hired whoever he hired to do it, he just was like, go wild, man. So they put them everywhere where they weren't supposed to put them too, but they also put them on construction sites. And it like sold tickets. It totally worked. So this is like how he built his empire sort of as an advertising guy, as an innovator, out of the box sort of dude. But before any of this, Gary cut his teeth. I mean, this is it makes sense that he's this good of a promoter because he cut his teeth promoting with Bill Graham. And after that, he tour manages. But he doesn't just tour manage anyone. He tour manages for Bob Dylan. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. I just want to tell you that I opened up and I Wikipedia Charlie, and I'm not going to say anything else so I don't ruin everything for everyone. Yeah, dude, you're not supposed to pull out the Wikipedia when I'm telling a story, man. Because I was like, Charlie, I don't know who Charlie Quintana, oh my God, who Charlie Quintana was, <laughs> okay. was in this band okay, and okay. that band. Keep going. All right. So we have three L.A. punks. We have one advertising genius tour manager. It's 1983. Let's hit pause again. I want you to slide all that over for a minute and just okay. stack the characters right there because we have to have, we have, to have a, a long conversation about Bob Dylan. We're going to have a long conversation. We're, we're, we're going to have a long conversation about Bob Dylan. It's a little startling that I don't even think we've said the name Bob Dylan on this podcast in almost 70 episodes. No. I mean, no. he's a bit like Elvis in the fact that, you know, I mean, we just did an Elvis episode for the first time, and it, it, he's just, there's such a giant shadow that the presence is a little overwhelming. There's so many phases of this guy, right? There's so many albums. And so for the yeah. sake of this story at hand today, we got a table set because the era in which you encounter Dylan matters, and this becomes all right. about Dylan eras. Now, a side note before we get started. Did you know there's a Bob Dylan bourbon? This is a thing. No, I knew about Lemmy's, and I know Metallica has one, which is ridiculous. Well, the cool thing about Dylan's is if you take three shots, you sing like them. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. That was a terrible joke, but it had to be made. Uh, okay. Quick Dylan timeline. 61, 1961, he goes to New York. 62, he puts out the folk song record that nobody likes. It sucks. 63, he does freewheeling, and the traction starts. 65, 66, he goes electric and starts pissing people off at folk festivals. 66, the motorcycle accident probably should be its own episode that we need to talk about at some point. Early 70s, my favorite era of Dylan, he goes country. Love the early 70s records. I can pass. I'm I'm a 60s Oh, man. I have New Morning in my car right now, a CD copy of New Morning in my car. Late 70s. Do you know what happens late 70s, Dylan? He finds Jesus Christ. He finds Jesus Christ, bro. And I mean, you know who who's on this podcast with you, right? So we're about to stop the car right here. <laughs> I know you're not going to be surprised. I know you're not going to be surprised that this know, becomes an to, important I, part of this I backstory. Have get, I have to get out of the rock and roll bedtime stories car and head over to the damn church over there on Main Street with Brian. <laughs> What are we doing here, man? We're going to talk about Bob Dylan? Uh, listen. Hallelujah. When, when people mention this conversion period, I feel like they imagine Bob Dylan standing in front of stained glass or confession boxes or something. Yeah. But but that's like totally not what it is. Okay. Jonathan Franzen. You know who that guy is? He writes novels. 
Yeah. He, I don't know anything about his conversion, so this is going to be really interesting so for me. Jonathan Franzen has a new novel called Crossroads, and it spends most of its time with a fictional church youth group in 1970 that capitalizes on embracing the countercultural movement and kind of spinning it towards Jesus, okay? And this was a real thing that, that happened. And when interviewed, Franzen says that one of the reasons he found this fascinating enough to write a 600-page novel about is that it marked in his opinion, one of the last times that evangelical Christianity and political affiliation weren't fully commingled. Because the moral majority doesn't uh, form until 1979. Yeah. So I mention all of this as a shortcut to get you a visual of what's happening in California in the late 60s and the early 70s when it came to church. There was this thing called the Vineyard Movement. And, and this was literally, it, it basically redefines church on the West Coast. I'm going to give you, at the end of this, I'm going to give you a bunch of additional listening and reading if you want it. You probably don't, but I, I, if you want to learn about this, there's another podcast you can listen to that, that's really been deep diving on this. It's great. But this is what you need to know about the Vineyard Movement. It's birthed out of the houses of a couple of hippie counterculture musicians, Chuck and Larry. I'm not kidding. Literally named Chuck and Larry, uh, not Kevin James and Adam Sandler. So <laughs> this sounds like this sounds like the Good Place. There's like a picture of Chuck and Larry. Chuck and Larry <laughs> took way too much peyote and found Jesus Christ. Uh, so we talked recently about how you were praying to a velvet Elvis at your dinner table growing up. Well, now I'm just saying it'd be more likely we'd have one of those. Right. Well, the closest equivalent at my house, if we were going to put musicians up there on the wall, would be Larry Norman and Chuck Gerard. So Chuck Gerard had this band called Love Song, and he ended up later going solo and like making albums with Ambrosia, like where Ambrosia was his backing band, which is oh, dope. Oh my <laughs> god! This is okay. This is the first time we've mentioned Bob Dylan on this podcast. Not the first time we've mentioned Ambrosia. I know it happened. I've been in I've been in an Ambrosia car wreck situation where I'm hanging out with a bunch of people and the women are repelled. Uh, by Ambrosia, oh, which why, to me it's though? like, why aren't they all wooed by the wonderful, smooth sounds of Ambrosia? So you know, but, you know right, why not. I knew who? Okay, I know I know who Ambrosia is for several reasons, but my first encounter with Ambrosia is not going to surprise you. Do you remember Take Six? Do you remember that group? They were like sure. vocal group. Okay, yeah, yeah. They did a cover of Biggest Part of Me, and that's I, I heard their cover first. Oh, wow. So I don't remember that at all. Okay. We're not here to talk about Take Six. That's another episode. Can't wait for the Take Six episode, everybody. <laughs> we're, but we are going to talk about Larry. So Chuck Gerard, he's, he's fine. Love song, Ambrosia, it's great. Look it up. Larry Norman. Do you, do you know the name Larry Norman? I, I was really curious about this. All, all of this is completely alien territory to me. Okay, it's funny Definitely. that you say alien, because Larry Norman has a song about aliens which is not actually a song about aliens. It's a song he calls UFO, um, in which he compares Jesus to an alien and his second coming an to an alien invasion. Flying object, you will see him in the air. He's an unidentified flying object and you will drop your hands and stare. You will be afraid to tell your neighbors they might
Okay, these these songs are cheesy. That's what I'm saying. But Larry Norman is considered the godfather of Christian music. Wow, holy mackerel! He is the godfather of Christian music. The best comparison I can make, both in look and sound, is probably like Leon Russell. He's this long-haired hippie dude. He's slinging an acoustic guitar around, but his songs put Jesus in the solution seat for all the peace questing that his contemporaries are doing. Right? And so are you saying he's like the godfather of? Of like what popular Christian music becomes, what has become. becomes yes yes he's the guy wow. that starts it all because he takes on this sort of Crosby Stills and Nash ish sort of vibe but with these really cheesy lyrics now I know a whole without the free bass yeah, without with, the free bassing okay <laughs> I I know a whole lot about his catalog for a lot of reasons and and uh, you know I mean like I said we we talked about him at home but in 1995. There was a compilation put out where Christian rock artists from that time did covers as a tribute of his catalog. And yeah. I definitely owned it and I definitely knew all the songs on it. And it had it opens with a guy named Jeff Moore who shouts to Jeff Moore and the three guys who know who Jeff Moore is that listen to this podcast. Um, but Jeff Moore opens the the this the album with a, a cover of that song UFO that I just mentioned. And then the tribute record incorporates for some reason in the album art the American flag which I don't understand because they're literally the third track is a song called the great American novel, which unlike UFO is actually a pretty good song and pretty good songwriting. And it's a, like a takedown of the American ethos and warmongering right of the time. Cause this is like early seventies. You kill a black man at midnight just for talking to your daughter. Then you make his wife your mistress and you leave her without water And the sheet you wear upon your face Is the sheet your children sleep on And at every meal you say a prayer You don't believe but still you keep on The, the, the big hit though, because that's what it comes down to with me and you, right? The big hit is a song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And this is the song that lives on. I mean, Larry's influence was huge, but this song got covered by DC Talk in the 90s. And it's like yeah. in the modern evangelical musical canon, even today, right? And it's about, if, if you can tell from the title, it's about wishing we'd all been ready when the rapture happens. This was, I, you know, we talked about satanic panic in the 80s. Inside the church, there was this like rapture, Roo rah rah thing that was happening. Like that's in the seventies and eighties. Everybody in the evangelical movement wanted to talk about when Jesus was going to come back. Right? There were the there were films, there were books. That late great planet Earth. I don't know if you know about that book, but you can look that up. There was this whole thing about we're gonna we're just gonna talk about the fact that it and it was like sort of like a horror movie, right? Like it could happen at any time. It's just gonna Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna take all the good folks, and then everybody else is is, is screwed. You're stuck on Earth. Terrible things are going to happen to you good luck try to get through it and that was like sort of this this fear-based phenomenon that was very popular so it's it's epitomized in this song by larry norman called i wish we'd all been ready life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor i wish we'd all been ready children Wow, 
Wow. I'm, I'm so glad I was in a completely dysfunctional relationship with my upside down family, with my completely absent father and listening to <laughs> country music and stuff uh, growing up and then starting to figure it out all by myself because, man, that sounds like some crazy, it's crazy possible dude. brainwashing craziness. Here, okay, so on. just to illustrate that, if you... If you want to fear, fear, fear is powerful. Fear is so. powerful, right? And, and I'm not saying yeah. that anyone that believe, has any religious beliefs is is it, they're all based in fear. Now I'm not. Yeah, that's I'm just talking about a specific cultural movement. We're looking back historically and it fit that movement, yeah, and it fits yeah. this movement. And there was this other. There was this guy, and I think his name was like John Chick. I think that was his name. Don't quote me on that. It was something Chick, I think. And he created these things called Chick Tracks which were like tracks like T-R-A-C-T-S, which were meant for witnessing. So like you could give, they were like little comic books though. So they were for hip witnessers. And you could give someone like, oh, hey, check out this little comic book, right? And they were the scariest things I've ever read in my life. Like I remember I went to this Christian school when I was a kid and they had a bunch of them in the library and we would read them during study hall and just be terrified. And and well, they were just so sensational. Weird. Yeah, you you should look this up too. Look up Chick Tracks. I'm sure you can find them. Somebody's archived them on the internet. I'm sure. And they are they scared me to death, man. Like I, you watch Friday the Thirteenth. I read Chick Tracks. It was all one and the same. So we actually, I, I'm very thrilled that I get to talk about Larry Norman for a brief moment on this podcast. He doesn't actually heavily tie into the story. I, I bring it up though because it's. Like I said, it's easy to think of the idea of Bob Dylan playing church in the fallout of the 60s as ludicrous, but this is to show you that there wasn't just a precedence for it. There was an entire movement around it. There were a lot of people that were similar to him, and where Bob does end up sort of embracing Christianity is in this movement that literally was was born out of Larry Norman's house. Now, it's debatable if Bob and Larry actually knew each other. I actually, no lie, found an archived message board from 20 plus years ago while researching that debates this, where people are going back and forth on, I don't think Larry actually knew Bob, and Bob said in one interview, and Larry said in this interview, but the point is not whether or not they knew each other. The point is, this environment existed, existed when Dylan needed it, but Bob says that his actual encounter with Jesus that turned him to Christianity happened in a Tucson, Arizona hotel room in 1978. Now, reminder, you may or may not remember this, his name is Zimmerman, right? He is a Jewish man. He was raised Jewish. He had a bar mitzvah. Tucson, Arizona. That's where I'm stuck in my head. But he's in Tucson, Arizona in a hotel room, and he says this, I sensed a, quote, presence in the room that couldn't have been anybody but Jesus. Jesus put his hand on me. It was a physical thing. I felt it. I felt it all over me. I felt my whole body tremble. The glory of the Lord knocked me down and picked me up. What? So what happens wow. to Bob Dylan after the hotel room holy rolling? He does a three-month Christianity crash course. I'm not clear on the specifics of what this entailed. Supposedly, he gets baptized, though, again, not a lot of proof of that. But what really happens is the effect on his career. He starts making Christian albums. And I'm talking about Larry Norman style Christian UFO style cheese ball Christian albums. Now, there's three records. Slow Train Coming is somewhat critically lauded, right? People are okay with that. 
that's the most famous one. But there's two after that, Saved and Shot of Love. And it's very overt. Like I said, I, I told you about Larry's lyrics. Here's actual song titles from these Bob Dylan records. I Believe in You, Gonna Change My Way of Thinking, When He Returns. And of course, maybe the most famous, the song that got a response track from John Lennon like he was a 1990s rapper, uh, Gotta Serve Somebody. Gotta Serve Somebody. You may yeah. be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve This was Absolutely. probably the track that alerted me to this period of Dylan, because again, I saw a punkish Christian rock band when I was like 12 cover this, and I was like, whoa, what is that? And someone, probably my dad, explained to me that it was a Bob Dylan song. And so then I bought Bob Dylan records because I was like, oh, Bob Dylan had a Christian period. I can have these records in my house. And that's how I got into Dylan. So what's interesting about First of all, do you know about the John Lennon response track to Gotta Serve Somebody? I don't know the, you know, the response issue. Like it's, it's literally like an answer to Bob Dylan. Okay. Wow. Got to serve yourself. period when this happens right like so now like for we kind of saw this happen recently with Kanye West where Kanye West just announced he was like a Christian and he was going to put out a gospel record and he did it right and he did it all in a short amount of time and he did it with a whole bunch of self-promoting social media none of that existed for Bob Dylan so just imagine being a Bob Dylan fan and, and you don't have a 24-hour news cycle. You don't have Twitter. You don't know what happens in a hotel room. Dylan didn't, like, bust out his phone and be like, whoa, God just touched me. Get ready for some rock. Like, that didn't happen, right? And, and that's, that's why I knew from my older sister, I remember hearing from her, she's like, I've seen, she was like, I saw him several times, and it was fantastic, and it was awful. It was fantastic, and it was awful. You know, it was up and down, and I... I I never thought about how just period based on when she might have even seen him at all that I mean he he was a chameleon at, at all times when, and and then and then the whole the the whole the whole conversion period is a trip completely right compared to like the guy that's on Steve Allen in, in 63 <laughs> singing folk songs dude so you you touched on something very important which is the most fascinating part of this is not the records. It's that it changes his live performance. Yeah, the live shows. Yeah. So in the last few years, bootlegs from this period were finally released, official bootlegs. But they've been around for a long time. They've just not been official. And years ago, my buddy Jake gave me one. Have you ever heard of a Dylan bootleg from this period? I've heard a, either a live record or a bootleg from this period. And it is, um, there is something very magical about it. Um, I remember it's days. cool. It's cool. The energy is high. And th this is the Dylan talking period. Like more appropriately, it's the Dylan preaching period. Like, I don't know how often you've seen him live. Have you seen him a bunch? I've seen him twice. Did he talk when you saw him? 
No. No. Um, he doesn't. No. No. And then the the second time I saw him, he 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 the nitty gritty dirt band yeah. opened up for him, uh-huh. and then the nitty gritty dirt band. Uh, and his band played together as his backing band, and he slayed for two and a half hours, no encore. So I've seen him multiple times too, and it's the same thing that you mentioned, which is you never know what you're going to get. I, I actually just had a friend who's a huge Bob Dylan fan tell me he saw him in Louisville at the Palace a few weeks ago. He said it's the best show he's ever seen. And Dylan's old, guys. He's real old. I don't know if that says more about the quality of show he's putting out now or the quality of show that my buddy John probably has seen in the past. <laughs> like, you know, because I remember being so disappointed. I went to Memphis when I was, was I, I guess I was end of high school and went to, went to a, a music festival in Memphis and Sunday night, Dylan was headlining. And I was super excited to see Bob Dylan and I waited all day and Ended up watching War play right before him, which was hilarious. Yeah. And then Dylan came out, and I suddenly realized I had no idea what was happening. And it took me a while to recognize any song because yeah, the songs are all played at different tempos. Though You can't understand him very well, and it was just crazy. And then I saw him years later with my dad and it was like, and I warned my dad, I was like, this is probably going to be terrible. And it was like pretty good. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it just sort of depends on the period and the time that you see him. And during this period, he was preaching like actually sort of like maybe not full on sermon, but he was talking a lot and he was talking a lot about God. And here's the other thing during this period, he quit doing his back catalog. Yes. Right. Yeah. So people are going to these shows and they're only getting these songs oh, that nobody man. likes. Oh man. Like the worst, the worst show ever. So it gave him a bad reputation. The opening night of a Dylan tour in San Francisco in November 79 received this scathing review from the Chronicle. Dylan has written some of the most banal, uninspired and inventionless songs of his career for his Jesus face. The headline of this article was Bob Dylan's God awful gospel. I bet that guy was so proud of that headline. I bet he was. So with this context, with this context about Bob Dylan and his spiritual awakening and his three albums nobody liked and his weird concert tours, let's unpause from the first part of this podcast and zoom back to those punk rockers sitting in L.A., California. And let's go back specifically to Charlie Quintana. 1983, Charlie's dating a girl who works in Gary Schaffner. That guy, the ad guy, works in his office. Yeah, right. The man-man guy. Yeah. But at this time, he's tour managing. And she's a pretty good girlfriend because she's looking out for Charlie and his rock star dreams. And she hears talk in the office that Bob needs a drummer. But not just a drummer for anything. Dylan had just finished recording an album that will come to be known as Infidels. What's your feeling on infidels? It's definitely not my favorite. Um, <laughs> but produced that. produced by Knopfler from Dire Straits. And he it, Knopfler actually played guitar in Slow Train Coming. And it said that Dylan initially wanted to produce the album himself, but he was worried at this point because if you do the math, Dylan's like hitting 50 around this period. That's how old Bob Dylan is. Gosh, wow. And he's getting the feeling that technology is passing him by. 
can you imagine him now? Because this is in 1983. And he approached a number of contemporary artists who were more at home in a modern recording studio. Are you ready for this list? He asked the following people to help produce an album for him. This might be the the thing that blew my mind the most out of this whole episode. I'm ready. Elvis Costello, which makes sense. They've toured together. David Bowie and Frank Zappa. (laughs) I just want to pause, and I want that sentence to sink in. We could have had a Frank Zappa Dylan record. Yeah, and it would have been... Maybe terrible, and then twenty years later, people would be like, "This is love brilliant." It. We would have loved it. It would have like it would have inspired Weezer. It would have been like a whole thing. So here's the deal: if I discover a time machine, this is this is job one. Yeah, no baby Hitler for you. You're going straight <laughs> for that. The pre- you're going for that record. I got it. <laughs> so once Knopfler is aboard on this record, the two assemble this team of accomplished musicians. Knopfler plays on it. Mick Taylor, who obviously from the Stones, he plays on it. And then they get these two guys, Sly and Robbie, who are reggae producers. So if you've ever heard Infidels and you're like, what is happening with the beat? That's what's happening with the beat. They got reggae wow. producers for this. So here, here's what I'm getting to with Charlie and the job and the, the I Need a Drummer thing is they get ready to release this album in 1983. This is Bob's 22nd record. Okay? Th- like literally the year I was born... Bob Dylan released his 22nd album and my buddy went and saw him play live a few weeks ago. So just wrap your head around that. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot of years in there. So he has a new challenge. Imagine a guy with a career this long. He's 22 albums in and for the first time in his career, everyone around him is saying, so we need you to do this thing called a music video. Can you imagine being a guy who who literally farmed out, tried to farm out your album production to Frank Zappa because you were scared of the technology, being told you have to create some sort of small movie about one of your songs? So I got to say, hats off. He had the right people around him because Sweetheart Like You is the lead single they choose. It's the first ever Bob Dylan music video. And man, that's a kick-ass song. Do you know that song? No, I'm not familiar with it. No. So the video is is Bob in a band performing in a bar as this one single sort of barmaidish character is cleaning up. It's simple. It's very simple. But because they kept it simple, it totally holds up almost 40 years later. But to do this, they need to cast the band because they realize that they're on this MTV thing. And while they understand that Bob Dylan is a legendary dude, They've got to put people around him that look cool and not Mark Knopfler and not uh, freaking Mick Taylor, right? So they're like, who are we yeah. going to put in this video? So they're casting the band. And they cast, and I don't have her name in front of me because I didn't put it in the notes, but if you watch this, there's a female guitar player and she rips, rips through the solo at the end of the song. And I looked it up and she is a musician but they hired her to be in the video and she's just pretending to play that solo. And that's the solo that Knopfler played in the studio. Knopfler, I can't remember. But so as part of all of this, they need to craft this band and they need a drummer and Gary Schaffner's office girl just happens to know a guy. And that 
is how the drummer for the plugs becomes the sole focus of the opening shot of the first ever Bob Dylan music video. If you turn this thing on right now, obviously it's in the show notes. That's the first thing you see is Charlie Quintana playing drums. My word. I don't know how, what, how to describe what you've done now that we're here, Brian, in the story where we started. We're only like 66% in. Jeez. Okay. Man. So it, it gets better. Here's, here's what gets better about it. Bob and Charlie hit it off. During the shoot, this is Quintana talking about the shoot. In between takes, Bob and I would chat. At the end of the last day, he asked, hey, you going to come to my house and jam sometime? <laughs> so Matthew Giles writes an amazing piece for Vulture in 2015 about this whole thing. And I'm borrowing heavily from it for, for most of the rest of this. I highly recommend it. Shouts to Matthew Giles if you're listening to this. I owe you a beer. So each week, someone from Schaffner's office would call Quintana and tell him a time to go meet Dylan at a Malibu rehearsal space. So this is literally how it happened. So he doesn't, he can't, it's 1983. They're not texting. There's no like, hey, don't friend me on Facebook, right? He just has to call the office and they'll go three o'clock Tuesday. And so I guess part of the arrangement is Quintana is supposed to bring friends to fill out the band. So he brings a bunch of dudes, like literally like 20 different people at some point accompany Quintana to this space. And then one wow. day, one day, and I don't know why it took him so long, but one day he brings Tony Marsico, his, his buddy from the plugs and their mutual friend, this guy named JJ holiday. Those are the three guys I introduced at the top quote. I don't know what Dylan saw says Quintana. But the plugs had all played together before, so I guess we had a connection that he liked. So this becomes the trio that regularly goes to Malibu to practice with Bob Dylan. Often hungover or sleep-deprived from a previous night's gig, they start driving in several times a week, and it's like these stories you hear about mob bosses or Lorne Michaels. They show up at noon, and they just wait for Dylan. He could show up at 3, he could show up at 5, he could show up at... 2.30, they never know. He's often just like wearing rubber boots and walking his baby, or it literally named baby, but his pet Mastiff. Um, once they get going, they'll start jamming for a few hours. And they basically jam like you or I would jam. So if you, were, if you came over tomorrow and brought your guitar and we sat down, We'd, we'd just be like, hey, Oasis, right? Or, hey, Archer's a Loaf. Like, we would just play stuff, songs we like, covers. And that's what they do. So these dudes, this punk band who covers, who, <laughs> who's about to do the Repo Man soundtrack, <laughs> they, they're playing music with Bob Dylan, and they don't play Infidels, and they don't play Old Dylan, they play songs like My Guy and Give Me Some Lovin'. And, and this goes on. So this starts in 83 when they shoot the video. And it goes on for a while. JJ, Tony, and Charlie have no idea what this is building towards. It's literally just this weird arrangement where they call a phone number. They get a time. They go to a space that's like this house that Dylan doesn't live in that he just uses for practice. And sometimes Dylan will just say stuff like, 
uh, yeah, maybe we'll go play this uh, showcase in Hawaii. Or he'll mention like touring South America. Like there's these like bizarre things he'll bring up. Nothing materializes until March of 1984. Dylan randomly says something one day about a gig he has the next week on a new show that was just getting established called Late Night with David Letterman. (laughs) Gosh, really? Now, man, it's worth reminding you here about where we are in Letterman's career arc. June 23rd, 1980, Letterman's given his own morning comedy show on NBC. It was 90 minutes long. Then they shortened it to 60 minutes by August. The critics like it. It wins two Emmys, and then it gets canned because it doesn't pull ratings at all. And so it's off the air by October 24th, 1980. But NBC knows they have something with Letterman, so they keep paying him. So he's on the payroll. In 82... February, he takes to the 12.30 a.m. time slot right after The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And it is called Late Night with David Letterman. And just to let you know, I was a central time zone person in 82, 83, and it came on at 11.30. And so I was not even, I was like a little under 10, and then 10, you know, 11, 12. And I watched Late Night with David Letterman. So I stayed up I stayed up past midnight watching David Letterman and Chris Elliott doing all that really weird stuff at the very the very early stuff. Yeah, and I yeah. and I saw and I saw some of the Andy Kaufman stuff. I mean I saw that too. So so Letterman was a really a really big he was like, you know, a person I watched, you know, like like my Ed Sullivan sort of because Sure. You know, I didn't because because Carson I, I saw Carson. Like I watched Carson. Um, that's how old I am. And then, you know, I saw when I never liked Leno. Um, so I always watched Letterman and watched him when he moved to CBS too. So he, what a, a huge impact on, on me as a kid, because, you know, you grow up nowhere and you're watching TV and you have four channels. Right. Right. Letterman was, Letterman was paramount to that experience. And Letterman seems mainstream now because he was on the air for 30 years. But yeah, at this but, point, he was not. Yeah. Very edgy. Like, what's the weirdest thing you remember seeing on Letterman? Um, stupid human tricks. Yeah. The, yep. the early days were really, they got much more tame, but they got, sometimes they were really kind of messed up and sometimes a little sexual. Like, there was some stuff, some, there was a little weird. Yeah. Um, the the Jerry Lawler Andy Kaufman thing was the best thing ever that was ever on right the most outrageous thing on there but so this is the scene right it takes a bit but late night with David Letterman becomes it's starting at this point two years in to become a thing but it's a thing that the cool and the hip and the cutting edge know about right and it's developing this cult following. But let's review Dylan's reputation, right? So Letterman's reputation is cutting edge. Dylan's reputation? He's a legend. He's got 22 records. Nobody's taken that away from him. But it, general tolerance for him is low. <laughs> he, he's smart enough to realize that this conversion period has taken a toll on his clout. And he's seemingly less enamored with Jesus, right? He's sort of kind of falling back on his Jewish heritage. So he has this new album, Hip Reggae Producers, 
but how is he going to convince the world that he's back? And that is why when Americans turned on their television in March of 1984 to watch this hip late night comedy show, they end up seeing Bob Dylan surrounded by the most badass looking punk band ripping through three songs with him on national TV. Think about this. He had Dire Straits and the Rolling Stones on the record. He had buddies from Greenwich Village he could have called. No, he didn't call the pedigreed players. Instead, he has the plugs flown from L.A. to New York, put up in a nice hotel. They literally say in this article that the only other time they've been in New York, they played in CBGBs, and they had to have their, like, the, their fourth guy sleep in the van to make sure their equipment didn't get stolen. Oh, yeah. So very different New York experience this time. Um, and here's the my favorite part. The day before the show, they have a practice, and they run through 50 songs with Dylan. 50. 5-0. Also, this is a great side note. The practice gets delayed because he has Ron Wood ship him a guitar because he wants to play Ron Wood's guitar on TV. That is... Some badassery. <laughs> what Can kind of guitar was it? Can you imagine? You'll, you'll have was to look at the clip. I'm sure you'll know right. it. You'll have to look right. at the clip. Okay. So here's my favorite part of this whole story. He doesn't tell them what they're going to play. Yeah, man. It's, that's, a Chuck, that's a Chuck Berry nasty move. They get to the studio. They get set up. The show starts. Liberace cooks. Yes, Liberace was on this episode. David Letterman pitches to them and in this moment bob dylan leans over and says let's do sunny boy and the band rips into sunny boy williamson's don't start me talking please welcome bob dylan I mean, the visual is just unbelievable uh, to just all of a sudden see J.J. Holiday with this scarf in his hair, and he's like weirdly tall, and they're just ripping. Uh, but they here's the other thing about Letterman and the format. They do three songs. Right, three yeah, I was going to ask what the, other two, what the other two are. So they do License to Kill next, which is on Infidels, and then they end with Joker Man. And oh, the, the Joker wow. Man performance is the one that I first came into contact with. I think it's the one that sort of floats around when people talk about this, as yeah, opposed to yeah. the other two.
So that's maybe that's in there in my head somewhere. And when and and when there was that Dylan tribute record that came out a couple years ago and Built to Spill. Oh my did god, the, the Built to Spill cover. version of it is so good. I feel like you're listening. It's like you're listening to Stairway. Like it's just. <sighs> It's it's like super epic. Like they they've like made it more epic than it, it's unbelievable. Really like, they've like really taken the essence of what Dylan was creating. And, and you there. can hear and, a little bit of it. So if you listen to original Joker Man and then you listen to Built to Spill, it seems like a jump. If you listen to the, this in between, you hear he puts a syncopation into Joker Man in this performance that is super great and. It's just, it's loud and it's sloppy and it moves. It, it, yeah, man, when the plugs are involved, it is roiling. That's the only way to describe it. After the show, Dylan and the band hang out backstage. They talk with Liberace. They have their photos taken by Rolling Stone. And then Dylan excuses himself because he says he has to go see a Knicks game with Keith Richards. Also true. So he's got Ron Wood's guitar. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to take the guitar, give it to Keith. Keith's going to give it back to her. I don't know. Uh, he tells the band on his way out, yeah, I'm a, I'm a going to call you on Monday. And they never hear from him again. <laughs> Ever. Oh, man. <laughs> well, that's, was... that's not entirely true. Quintana ends up touring with him briefly later. But in terms of the plugs as his backing yeah. band in a garage in Malibu or wherever, I don't think it wasn't a garage, but it's fun to say it that way. Uh <clears throat> That never happens again. Uh, these guys go on and have quiet but decent careers. J.J. Holiday plays in a blues band with Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi. He also ends up becoming buddies with Johnny Depp and now does creative research for Johnny Depp's production company. Interesting. Quintana and Marsico morph the plugs into the Cruzados. They sign with Arista. They release two albums and then disband in 88, and Quintana joins Social Distortion. I know. Oh my gosh. And and let me tell you, buddy, he replaced former eventually eventually Danzig drummer Chuck Biscuits. That's who he replaced. <laughs> who was who was also the, the drummer in the circle jerks. Uh, you and I have seen social distortion together. That was a great yeah. night. That was a great night. And man, I love social distortion. I do too, man. I really do. So one last funny side story from this i mean let, let's end it by saying bob got what he needed he got his groove back and these dudes got to know forever and always that they were the weirdos that helped them do it and it's a pretty amazing story and i i love the joker man clip from letterman as that is the video i was talking about at the top that is the performance that if someone said Show me your favorite television performance. It's that. It's just jar- I, one of my best friends. We pass it back and forth on a regular basis every three months. Just you know, send it to each other. Say, hey, if you're having a having a day, here you go, um, because it just brings so much joy to me. But there's a funny side story that came out of this. If you watch that Joker Joker Man performance, there's a there's a spot in the middle where Bob starts to play a harmonica and he hits a bad note. And then he starts running around the stage and he puts the harmonica up. He comes back with another harmonica. And then at the end, he shreds on harmonica for a while. So what the hell happened there? As a side product of all of the research that I did for this, I ended up in a deep, dark place on the internet called a Reddit board in which someone has posted this. 
I can't believe this exists. And it's in the show notes if you want to go read it. The real story behind Harmonica Gate. <laughs> Harmonica Gate. I was the person who handed Bob Dylan the harmonica during his performance on David Letterman. <laughs> My name is Ed. And back in the day, I worked for one of the biggest rock and roll production managers in the country. At the time, these guys were doing production for Bob Dylan. I got a call saying Dylan was appearing on Letterman. And could I take care of his backline duties? So skipping ahead, basically what happens is he asks Dylan what key his harmo- like what key harmonica he needs. Right. And Dylan tells him the wrong one. And he puts it on stage and then he grabs the wrong one and he has to come back and bring another one. And he basically thinks he's ruined his career. And then at the end, he says, a month later, I got a call asking me if I would go on an upcoming European tour with Bob Dylan. <laughs> but you should go read the whole thing because it's worth it. It's it's great. And I mean, of all the trash that's on Reddit, I'm glad this exists. That's an amazing story of true. Uh, the whole thing is amazing to me. I just, in this conversion, this idea that he's savvy enough to say, I can do whatever I want, but also if I'm going to come back, I need to get everyone to pay attention. Um, you know, I mean, I just think we underestimate a little bit how smart Bob Dylan is. Oh, geez, dude. His career moves have been fantastic i mean i think i always just figured it was because he was bob dylan like at a certain point he was there at the beginning and people have just been sort of like opening doors for him but i really think he's figured out how to surround himself with the right people and continues to make these savvy moves and like i said the dude is in his 80s still out there performing like no need to perform like you you realize jacob dylan from the wallflowers is getting pretty close to the senior citizens discount that's how old bob dylan is (laughs) <laughs> oh man. This is a great story, man. I love how um I love how it all came together. It's really amazing. If you want to learn more about two things, I'll give you two pieces that are fun. So there an old friend of mine from that I've known since I was, I don't know, twelve or thirteen, named Mike Cosper, uh, has a podcast out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that is a massive podcast right now. I mean, obviously things are not we, we don't see numbers, but I mean, this, this has been in the top of the, the stacks for a while. And it's actually about a church in Seattle that imploded in 2014 and sort of examining what happened there. But as a part of that, he does several episodes where he deep dives into the history of evangelicalism. And, and there is a lot of stuff about the vineyard movement. And I was unfamiliar with a lot of it. So if you want to deep dive into the vineyard movement, that's a great, and, and it's done like NPR style, serial style. I mean, even if you have no interest in evangelicalism, it's a very interesting thing. The other thing I would recommend to bring it back to music more directly is John Darniel. You and I are both big fans. He's got a band called Mountain Goats. Have you read any of his novels? No, I haven't read his books. No. So he's got two. I own them both proudly, love them both. The first one is called Wolf and White Van. And Wolf and White Van is a reference to a Larry Norman song. And Larry Norman comes into play as a, not as an actual character, but as a reference point within the story of Wolf and White Van. Um, And so if you want to have some fun, that is a dark ride 
but it's not super long and it's really well done. John Darnielle is a master. Um, both his books are like really strange, um, but really interesting storytelling and I highly recommend. So there you go. A little bit more homework if you, um, you know, if, if I have the power to influence you to do things, those are two things that I encourage. Uh, and, and I tell you, the other thing I encourage you to do is send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com and uh, let us know what you think of this, what uh, you want us to research, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll check it out for you. I'll keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.